You're listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky, where cutting edge science meets the razor's edge of health and performance. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of Body IO FM. This is your host, Kiefer, with co host, Dr. Rocky Patel. Hey, Kiefer. And today, our special guest, who's always on us for research reviews, Alex Moore. Howdy. And just quick call out to our one sponsor. Luckily, we don't have like 500, but High Lead Athletic Wear. Uh, check out the, the badge on the website. You can get, what is it, like 25% off your first purchase from there. And yes, unfortunately, it's only your first purchase. Um, but like, like I said, I, I love their gear and the people there are just really quality people as well. You know, I've, I've enjoyed working with them. So check them out. Uh, I don't think I'm supposed to mention something for Jim Laird. There's a fitness expo in Austin, Texas. Anybody know what that is? I have not heard about it. Mm-mm. Hmm. Somebody have a phone? We should try to figure this out really fast. I guess I'm actually on a computer, so I'm going to. The Natural Fit Games? Yes, that was it. Uh, Jim Laird's going to be presenting there. What are the dates since you just put your phone back in your pocket? Uh, hold on a second. I will check. Man, we are the least prepared podcast probably in the industry right now. Saturday, July 26th. But I don't know if that is... That's it? Uh, well, whatever. You, everybody can look it up. It's the Naturally Fit Expo in Austin, Texas. It's actually a workshop. Yeah. A yeah, Jim's got a, got a big presentation there too, I think. Yeah, looks like it's a one-day workshop. Yeah, so everybody check that out if you're in Austin or you have the hankering to visit Austin, probably my least favorite town in the country at the moment. Um, you know, go check it out. It, it's actually it's a fun town to visit. Uh, I thought it was a crappy place to have to live. But otherwise, uh, go check that out. Jim's presentations are always excellent. Uh, you'll learn a lot, and you'll learn about a lot about your own mechanics, let alone helping other people with theirs. So... Uh, check that out, and uh, like I already mentioned earlier today, we've got Alex Moore on the show, so we're obviously going to do a research review, and we're going to start this one off with a actually pretty extensive review article on the human gut microbiome, which you know really has one takeaway message from what? How long was that paper? Like twelve pages? Is it two thousand fourteen? I mean. You yeah, know, that, how many pa- pages the microbiome oh, paper? It was like <laughs> it was like fourteen or sixteen pages. This is like the worst podcast ever. Oh, it's like it's got what, a good it's, it's got a good uh, good amount. How about that? So it's it's somewhere between twelve and sixteen pages. And this thing, uh, although you know it had some very interesting information about the gut biome and uh, different things that we're learning, uh, I. What really bothered me about it and what we want to talk about is not so much the information that was presented in the paper, but the author's hyper-focus on the gut biome as a major target of uh, health manipulation, uh, essentially, which I think puts the cart before the horse. You know, the what we're seeing in the in the gut biome, you can look at it as one of two ways. You can say people are sick and obese because their gut biome is messed up. Or you could say that their gut biome is messed up because they're fat and sick. And my interpretation of the data thus far, and I think it's a much stronger 
correlation in this direction is that our gut biome is sick because we're sick. And it's not even necessarily sick. It is actually attempting to help us achieve our goals, which because of the way we eat, our body is interpreting that our goal is to get fat and store energy. Uh, and the gut biome is just adjusting to help us with that. And they've even shown if you are obese, that your gut biome is actually producing obesogenic chemicals. And I don't think that you're obese because the gut biome is doing that. I think the gut biome is trying to help you out. Uh, you know, if you think about it, we have evolved for at least 2 million years with this gut bacteria. And it survived because it helped us to survive. So it is going to mimic whatever is going on inside the body. We have tons of information that we know there's cross chatter between what's going on in the human body and what's going on in the gut biome. So there's a two-way communication street there and the gut bacteria is going to help us achieve the results that we are telling it we're attempting to achieve by the food we eat. Uh, and, and we see this because we get rapid reversal in the type of gut bacteria that proliferates just from changing the diet very simply. And, you know, we're talking about changes over three days, which is a very small window of time, but your gut bacteria will modify itself that quickly. Uh, so my problem with this entire review was that the authors, and, and this ties into the paleo community a lot, and I know some people have been complaining that I've been trashing paleo, but it's because I think paleo is presenting a problem. And it's, again, distracting people from looking at the important message, which is we have to get the body healthy. Everything else will follow. And in this paper, the authors took the opposite approach. They said, well, our gut biome is sick, so what we need to do is come up with novel ways to target the health of that gut biome, uh, which, which, again, is doing exactly what Western medicine does. It doesn't say, well, you know, you're sick, so let's make you healthy, and then it will correct all these other parameters. Instead, we're going to give you drugs to try to control those parameters, and hopefully that will make you healthy. Um, that's the exact same thing that's going on here. It's like, well, we're going to create drugs target your mi microbiome or we're going to use special foods and that's just going to magically make you healthy uh i you know that will be a failure i absolutely guarantee it i, I find it interesting that you use the word magical because it, there's almost a magical like thinking to all of this as well um i think that from a standpoint of what you said it certainly makes sense i mean the number of bacteria species that you have is so great let alone the number of genes that are uh, they talk about in the paper. They they quoted like over five million different genes that you can identify. So how can you go in there and target per se such a wide variability of of species? I mean, this doesn't seem like it would make sense from that standpoint. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, again, it's 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 a very big diversion because what is the there's an entire project right now to map out the entire genome of all the bacteria species in the gut. And to be honest, I think that's going to be a big waste of money. It's not going to tell us anything useful other than possibly our, you know, it might be able to give us some insight individualistically to where we evolved or where our predominant uh, ethnic background is from because I have a feeling you know, that cross-communication is going to allow certain bacteria to proliferate that are specific to certain regions or uh, were dominant in those regions. So, I, you know, it'll give us some information like that, but I don't think it's going to tell us anything about our state of health or how to fix it if 
we ignore the major components of diet that are making us sick. I think it's a classic case of symbiosis, and I'm, I, your case is well, your point's well taken. I think, um, you know, particularly when you, you talk about systems working against you, no, everything's trying to work with you. It's what you're actually fueling yourself with. And uh, you know, it's, it's basically avoiding the elephant in the room. Yeah, which we talk about multiple times. I think that, though, you know, given a context of the whole scenario, maybe there might be a point in time where you could look at that biome and say, okay, this might be one of those tests that we might look at to associate the sickness that is with you. So I think that from that time, but there might be some benefit. But again, um, you know, it would be adjunctive, if anything, if you ask me. Right. It would be a, you know, that's what I was talking about. You know, we could have, it could actually turn out to be a very interesting and useful diagnostic tool. Um, but again, I think it ends there. And that's, uh, again, that's how we should look at a lot of the blood work that we look at and um, blood sugar levels and cholesterol levels. Those are diagnostic tools. The only thing we can say when those are out of whack is that something is wrong with the body and we need to figure out how to correct that. Uh, I, you know, all the stuff that's going on with the microbiome is just a new set of parameters telling us that people are sick. I mean, hell, you can look at 80% of the people out there that are sick and just say, you know what? I bet you're metabolically deranged. There's all kinds of telltale signs, whether they're vegan, whether they're obese, whether they're diabetic, um, you know, whether they've got sarcopenic obesity, you know, you can look at somebody and that's a, it sounds funny, but that's a really powerful diagnostic tool. Uh, or ask them some questions. Do you sit all day, every day for your job? Well, odds are uh, you need to exercise more. Um, but instead, we put this hyper focus on all these diagnostic parameters and say, well, if we just fix those parameters, whether it's medication or uh, fecal transplants, which are my favorite, you know, I. That I, was actually mentioned in that paper, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah. And what's funny is. Um, yeah, everybody's all jazzed up about these fecal transplants, which, if you ask me, is an amazing sign of desperation. Uh, we just don't know what's going on, and we're so desperate for any solution to our problems. We're, we're willing to have somebody else's cleansed feces injected into our colon. Interestingly, it takes quite well <laughs> from the paper. Yeah, you know, and, but what I would like to see is what are the long-term effects like if you keep eating a crappy diet, uh, it, how useful is that? Um, not, not very, I would suspect. Yeah, I would suspect that you're going to generate the, the old biome once again. Well, you know, the indication for FMT, fecal microbial transportation, it would be for clostridium infection. And that was the only one that they really mentioned in the, in the journal article, which is a pretty specific indication. So, mm -hmm. Do they talk about incidents, though? I mean, how often is that occurring? The incidence of, of the infection, you mean? Yes, or, yeah. Um, I don't recall. They didn't say it in the article, but the problem with, with clostridium um, infection, it is on the rise. It is usually in, from an antibiotic exposure, but about 30% of patients can have spontaneous infection as well, So, uh, and it's transmissible. So you can, if you come in someone with contact with the infection, you know, certainly you could get the infection as well. So um, it is a, actually, you know, you can die from it. It's a, it's a, you can, it's a pretty serious infection. So for those patients that have um, uh, infection that doesn't respond to, ironically, antibiotic therapy, um, it's been, been shown to be fairly uh, effective. So. so there's people out there willing to take this significant risk. 
uh, when there's other things that could possibly be changed. I think that's pretty interesting. Well, no, the, the transplant was to treat that infection. Oh, was it? Correct? Okay. Yeah, pardon correct. Me. It was treatment for the infection. Okay, pardon me. Right. So, you know, what's... Well, and, and so, you know, there we have a very specific use case, but uh, that is not... I mean, there's clinics that are just opening up so you can go get a fecal transplant, and people are very happy to talk about it, and it's not because they have some potentially life risking infection. It's just because they're metabolically deranged and their gut floor is out of whack. So they're going to have somebody else's feces put in them. Really? Yeah. Yeah. That it's like very popular at the moment. Wow. I'm, I'm like, that's scary. Well, yeah. And, and people are like bragging about it. Yeah. <laughs> think, think paleo for that right now, you know, because there's been such that hyper focus on fix the gut, fix everything else that, you know, people are willing to go to, whatever measures to have that done. So, all right. Any other, anybody else want to comment? Uh, it sounds like that was the end yeah, of that, I, that rant. I think that's good. Uh, well, I, I, again, I think that it, it's something that just definitely requires further investigation. There is several, you know, the evidence shows that, you know, getting more of these short chain fatty acids into the gut can decrease inflammation. There's that link. But like you said, it's again, which direction is it going in? So, Right. I mean, why don't we just focus on getting people healthy? I, I mean, in, in your clinic, Rocky, you've seen massive reversals of all types of blood parameters just from using carbonite for six weeks, correct? Oh, definitely. I mean, we, we can see that in as little as four weeks. So I, I, do people feel better? I mean, obviously, I think the biggest thing here is you have to take that 50,000 foot view instead of looking at the minutia here. And I think that's the one of the issues if you look at maybe paleo or whatever movement you're looking at is, is there's this focus on minutia instead of looking at the big, big picture here. Right. And, you know, it's, there's been this decreased focus on, I think, macronutrient composition, especially with things like if it fits your macros, which doesn't give a shit about food at all, just, you know, you could eat Twinkies uh, for your nutrition source and they're like, oh, that's all you need to do. And, you know, so there's been this kind of, and paleo, same thing. It's like macronutrient agnostic, so they call it. Uh, and, you know, things like that. There's been this decrease in focus on what's really one of the most simple parameters that you could tackle on your own and make huge uh, benefits for yourself. You know, all these diagnostic tests, all of a sudden you can get really positive results. Uh, and, and again, we, we're focusing on this minutia and things that would probably just correct themselves just by changing your diet. Uh, but again, since the research is all over the place and these are all done in several different types of dietary contexts, uh, it, it, it's really hard to say what, what the right direction is there, you know, as far as what we should be doing with the gut biome. Like I said, in, in rat studies, in an environment that never will exist in the real world, uh, these mice, they, they raise mice in a completely sterile environment where they have no gut bacteria whatsoever they're healthier and they live longer than their peers who do have the natural gut bacteria that they would normally have that's quote-unquote in a healthy state so i i think the message there is we shouldn't try to eliminate the gut bacteria but the message is we're forced to live with it end of story it is not necessarily helpful it can be disadvantageous but it's something we're forced to live with um it's not something that is going to, that you can tweak here and there and it's going to alter your health incredibly. You know, I think that's just, um, 
my patented word, a canard. You know, we're being, we're being sold something to distract us from the real problem because, you know, people just don't like to hear, well, you can't have your Wheaties anymore or your your Pop-Tarts and, uh, you know, that just bothers people or bread. Oh no, I can't give up bread. But it tastes good. (laughs) I know. And that's, that's the beauty of using carbs like a, like a drug. You still get to eat all that crap in some cases. What's next? Moving on, you wanna you wanna talk about this one, Alex? Yeah. So this was the uh, this paper was titled "Quality Protein Intake Is Inversely Related with Abdominal Fat." Uh, this was actually recently published in 2012. So this was actually a uh, secondary analysis where the authors investigated the relationship between the amount of quality protein consumed in a 24-hour uh, 24-hour period. Uh, and the amount of times that the 10 grams of essential amino acid threshold was was reached at each meal in regards to central abdominal fat. And you want to go on with what they... Yeah. So the amount of quality protein consumed and the amount of times reaching the uh, uh, essential amino acid threshold per day was inversely related to um, percent of uh, central adiposity. So in, in more layman's terms, the more times <laughs> right. you the got, more times you reach this threshold, the lower your uh, central adiposity. Right. So, you know, uh, essentially, if you can get in higher quality protein, uh, did they did they control for just frequency or did they control for? So, for example, was getting the adequate protein supply six times a day? I, I just can't remember. Was it better than three times a day? I can't remember what they specifically basically it was just per meal no matter how many right. meals you yeah. eat per Rocky, day what, was, i'm just i'm looking right now it was just quality protein consumed in a 24-hour period per meal but they didn't really say how many meals a day um they just said just getting it through the threshold for a meal throughout the day yeah the more times it was reached so in other words every meal you should be trying to hit that ideal um max well minimum effective dosage essentially yeah and just to be clear that's not 10 grams of protein that's 10 grams of essential amino acids right um and there there's uh we can talk about it later but you know i uh or here in a second because there's uh definitely some indication that it might be they call it instead of uh some some research has been looking at and some people have been purporting that it's not uh, this essential amino acid threshold so much as it as it is the leucine threshold of the meal uh, can make the biggest difference for uh, potential hypertrophy or muscle accretion or prevention of muscle loss, uh, which, which kind of relates to this article a little bit. But I thought it was interesting that it correlated so well with central obesity, um, which from people who are interestingly vegetarian or vegan, uh, we still oftentimes see that, that gut and that pooch forming in that population, despite, uh, you know, some of their claims to and, and claims. Otherwise, uh, we still see that central, um, deposition of fat. And basically. I think th- this kind of helps argue the fact that, uh, uh, this ties directly into the quality of the type of protein you're right. consuming. Right, because they might get adequate protein, but the quality is oftentimes low. And I think triggers uh, what we've talked about on the show before, you know, the triage situation that we look at where the body has to actually cannibalize other tissues 
to help to increase the amino acid loads so that it can use what you ingested effectively. I think the important here about the abdominal fat, again, would be that would be the more visceral, more active fat that is usually highly associated with cardiovascular risk and diabetic risk as well. Um, what I found interesting here was then when they looked at the mean values for carbohydrate and dietary fat, the carbohydrate amount was actually quite large. It was uh, an average of 235 grams and 72 grams of fat. What did that work out percent-wise? Uh, they didn't uh, give a percent, and I didn't calculate it. So, uh, But... Again, the, the, uh, just, and then the essential amino acid threshold uh, was previously reported at 91 grams for that 24-hour period. So again, this wasn't a, a, a study where they're pounding a lot of protein down them, um, but and it wasn't a, per se, carb night or carb backloading study per se, but the, the amount of carbohydrate there was fairly large. Um, it might not be large compared to the general population these days, but I think that's an important point to, to factor in that, you know, there's still a fairly large carbohydrate load um, and they saw improvement in the abdominal fat. Right. And that's just from making sure that the quality of protein was adequate. Correct. According to their threshold. So that's, I mean, that's, that's pretty powerful evidence. Well, yeah, yeah, I think it's, uh, it's definitely, I mean, it's one paper, so it's, you know, hard to say. We, again, that's one of those things that, uh, I think it's very, very promising, and it helps to explain a lot of things we've seen. Uh, but again, some more research in this direction would be so valuable because then you could look at what is the most effective protein so that we could hit the minimum dose uh, just to make that easier for people instead of, well, you know, you might have to eat so much of this and so much of this. You know, we can find that minimum dose. And that. That might be why we see whey isolate to be so effective in so many studies looking at muscle wasting, muscle growth, uh, pres preservation of lean muscle mass during dieting, uh, preservation of lean mass uh, for people who are infected with HIV and who develop full-blown AIDS. Uh, that, that might explain the power of these, you know, what I will call exotic animal proteins, even though it's not really exotic at all. Any comments on that? You guys look. I don't know. I was just like looking half asleep. I, I was looking in the paper, just trying to see what they if they delineated what they were given, but it doesn't really say what they were using. So yeah, it I think that like was it was, it was a mixed meals. Was yeah. it a recall data? Uh, I'm not sure. Well, yes, it was self-reported. Correct. Right. So. So, I mean, it could be better, I mean, like you said, this, I think, kind of opens up for more research. It could certainly be better designed, and I, I think uh, different uh, amounts and, and different quantities could be tested, and different ma macronutrient composition. Right. This is one of those things that, you know, I feel like it, this is one of the opening stages of, of the scientific method, and that's that we now have s basically empirical evidence and observation that we now need to go test. Um, unfortunately, most people and most quote unquote internet fitness gurus would stop here. They'd be like, oh, this is proof. Absolutely. Blah, blah, blah. But, you know, this is basically the first stage. We have an observation. Uh, now with this observation, we should go and test more directly, which I'm sure is going to happen one of these days. Who knows with budgets? Um, I don't think so. You don't think so? <laughs> No, <laughs> I think it will, you know, there, because there's still that, 
Um, you know, there's still so much concern with aging and protein quality and muscle loss and central obesity. Um, th- this is a novel target to help to eliminate two of those things, you know, the potential muscle wasting and central obesity that occurs in one pretty simple therapy. I am in total agreement with that, but I am pessimistic in terms of uh, that getting done. Well, see, this is where I, you know, I, I don't know if grant money would come up for this, but this is something like I could see a researcher like uh, Dom D'Agostino, where he kind of piecemealed some funding together to do a really novel research study that really there's no reason to do other than curiosity at the moment. You know, and for example, that one was if you take trained bodybuilders and you put them on a true ketogenic diet, will they gain muscle mass? I mean, honestly, how useful is that study to the general public right now? How, how, what percentage of the general public is a well-trained bodybuilder? You know, but, but he, his curiosity, you know, he got the funding done to, to get it done. Right, but how many Dom Diagosinas are out there with that curiosity, right? Yeah, unfortunately not <laughs> enough. Um, but, you know, it's possible. I, I think, you know, it, maybe we, if we have enough PhD students, uh, Alex, more, listening <laughs> to this show, that might influence what they would like to look at for their PhD dissertation. So basically we just need to keep fighting the good fight is what I'm trying to say. Stop being so negative, Rocky. I'm supposed to be the negative one on the show. Really? Yeah. You don't think so? Uh, maybe, but <laughs> I don't even know many it, people it, as negative as I am. It's Sunday. I got to work tomorrow. Maybe that's my problem is. <laughs> All right. On uh, to the next one. Yeah, we're done with that. No other com- commentary. I think that's good. All right. Who, who wants to do this one? This, this is one that I'm sure if it has not, it will pretty quickly go through the ranks of the intermittent fasting community. Uh, actions of short-term fasting on human skeletal muscle, myogenic, and autogenic gene expression. Atrogenic. Oh, yes, the R. Thank you. No problem. <laughs> so here they investigated the impact of short-term fasting, um, the 15 and 14 hours on gene expression of myogenic and atrogenic factors in muscle. No alteration. So let's... Let's just go first through, you know, my, the myogenic genes that we're looking at, uh, like MyoD, uh, what MRF, or did they look at the MRF genes? I, I don't remember the full list of them. Um, but basically the myogenic genes are the genes that are activated that help us to increase muscle mass m- purely through hypertrophy. Uh, hyperplasia does not occur in human adults. Uh, so, you know, it's this, uh, these are the genes that become activated for whatever reason, if we are building muscle. Now, the atrogenic genes are the opposite. One, one that should be well, my, the audience should be familiar with is myostatin. Uh, it's a powerful atrogenic gene, and when it is activated, it actually either stops the body from adding new muscle mass or signals atrophy. So you will start to lose muscle mass, and um, this is... This is something we see in people who are malnourished or bedridden. Myostatin goes up. Uh, they start to catabolize their muscle tissue. So, you know, we, we have these two sets of genes, and the balance act between those is what allows us to improve athletic performance, basically, or to uh, add new muscle mass. So ideally what you would want are the myogenic genes to be activated and the atrogenic genes to be downregulated. 
and go on, Alex, if you want to go on to yeah, what so, they've looked at previously yeah, so, and what they looked at in the yeah, study. Yeah, what they and they actually did a uh, muscle biopsy, um, which I thought was pretty cool. <laughs> you don't see that too often. Not for the participants. No, well, yeah, well, yeah, that's how it goes sometimes. <laughs> they used xylocaine. Yeah, they did at least give a local anesthetic. Where was that taken out of, by the way? Uh, vastus lateralis. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So and another thing I found quite interesting about this is the meal, their last meal before the fast was actually a, a mixed meal. Uh, it was fairly high carbohydrate. Rocky, do you have the... Uh, 61%. 61% carbohydrate. So, I mean, what do you think the implications are that for the fast? Um, You know, it that was one of the first things that kind of set off, not necessarily... Uh, warning bells for me, but a possible confounding factor because we know that what you eat even before bedtime can influence a lot of genes downstream and a lot of reactions that you'll have later, uh, up to 48 hours later. So what, what we, what they did here was they had a huge increase in, well, maybe not a huge increase, but their last meal was a very high carbohydrate meal. And in light of that, that should have been something that should have been looked at or uh, at least noted in the paper that that could have had effects over a 48-hour window. And they only looked at fasting over 40 hours. And this was a single event, a very small population. They had six people in this study. Uh, and they didn't even mention the possibility of that being a confounding factor. Yeah, I, I kind of... I. The 15 and 40 hour mark, I'm, I kind of was a little confused at why they decided to choose those time periods. Uh, you know, I think they were just... Maybe out of convenience, I suppose. Yeah, I'm going to guess, uh, you know, probably the 20 hour mark would have been when the individuals were sleeping potentially. But, you know, not not mentioning that is the first first thing that kind of struck me. Uh, it was interesting that, that uh, in this singular event... So again, this is a singular event. These people were fed normally, and then they were given a last meal, a last supper, if you will, and then fasted for 40 hours and then went right back to their normal schedule. So what we have here is a very, very isolated incident. We know that- and a very small sample size. Right. All we And these were young participants. The average age was 27 years old. Um I think that, that that small sample size has got to be stressed. I mean, you look at the figure one where they plotted out the different levels uh, of mRNA expression with the um, MyoD, the Myogen, and the MYF5. Um, they're all decreasing over time at 3, 15, and 40 hours. And you look at the atrogenic uh, gene expression. And interestingly enough, the uh, atrogen one and the myostatin levels were actually higher at the 15-hour mark than they were at the 40-hour mark. So I just, you know, that's going to skew with that, with that kind of sample size, your data is going to be skewed. And that was my point. So, I mean, yeah. that that's the issue here, I think. So the funny, the fun thing now is we'll see that this is probably going to be extrapolated in a, by the fasting community. Oh yeah. The intermittent yeah. fasting community is going to jump all over this, which was one reason uh, when, when you presented this one, Alex, that's why I wanted to talk about it. So we could talk about its limitations and that it is actually not information that I would say could be applicable to intermittent fasting. I mean, for one, they didn't even mention what the, the state of these people as far as their activity level. So what if these had been training athletes and we put them through a 40-hour fast, uh, would we have seen a, a bigger downregulation of some of those myogenic genes? And I can't guess one way or the other. I'm not sure. I'm going to say from... 
uh, previous research I've looked at, yes, we would probably see a greater downregulation uh, in that instance. I'm not sure we would see a, a large increase in the atrogenic genes, but we might. Uh, so this is, you know, again, this one does absolutely nothing uh, for me, and I think for at least the diet dieting community, whatever your shtick is, whether it's uh, if it fits your macros or intermittent fasting or ketogenic, uh, it really doesn't tell us much useful information other than if you're eating a mixed American diet and you fast for 40 hours, you don't have to worry about activating a large amount of muscle loss. And that's about all that it says. I would agree. Yeah. So if anybody out there just feels like fasting for 40 hours, this, this actually fits more with um, Brad Pilon's kind of dietary scheme than anybody else's. I mean, his is like eat normally all week and then just take 24 or 48 hours and don't eat at all. Um, so this paper, if, if nothing else, would help to support, to at least say that the very, very first time you do that cycle, you're not going to cause any damage. So Brad can at least say that about his eat, stop, eat program now. Right. That's, I think that's accurate. So, yeah. Um, you know, the interesting thing about that would be what I like to see is because we need more muscle biopsy participants, right. Um, it would be the idea of doing this in a ketogenic state and then taking a look at, at the, at the, the results that, and that would be actually what I'd like to see. Yeah. No, that would be really interesting. Uh, there's all kind of combinations you could do here. You could be on a ketogenic diet and then go for a 40 hour fast, see what happens with these genes. And then interestingly, be on a ketogenic diet, then have a last meal that was a high carbohydrate load like carb night, see what happens to those genes over the next 40 hours of fasting. Uh, you know, there's so many combinations here that would give us some interesting information. But again, if this isn't going to be repeated over time, I'm not really sure of the applicability. Uh, you know, what would be the advantage of doing this is the real question. We saw from this paper there's probably not a disadvantage. Um, you can get, if you're on a high-carbohydrate-based diet, diet and you're stressed out all the time, uh, the one advantage of doing this could be activation of the autophagy system to help your cells clean out, get a little healthier, uh, get some of that garbage out of them that needs to be broken down and recycled. Um, but again, if this isn't going to be repeated in the study, so, you know, maybe 40 hour fast, do it again next week, do it again a week after that, we really can't, can't use this to ever say you should fast. Agreed. Uh, other than if you're stuck in the mountains, it's okay if you don't eat for 40 hours. Not a big deal. Cool. Noted. Good. <laughs> All right. Let's go over the, uh, increasing muscle mass review. Yeah, that one's, I mean, so fundamental and follows with everything I've been saying for at least the last 15 years. Rocky, why don't you take this one? Or are you prepared to take this one? Because this is most directly related to health. And I talk enough as it is anyway. Uh, I'll defer to Alex. Uh, Alex did the last two. Any, anyway, okay, so <laughs> putting Rocky on the spot, unprepared. He actually is the only one that has all the articles printed out, too, by the way, and in his hand. I think I fell asleep <laughs> reading this one. Yeah, is that what it is? So basically, the, you know, this was a really, I'm just going to say fun review because it went through the impact of increasing muscle mass and health and the different things that um, skeletal muscle tissue can 
influence. You know, we've we've had such a massive focus recently on um, adipose tissue and the adipokin, uh, adipokinin. Adipokines? Yeah. I, I'm not even going to try to say it again. I'm going to butcher it because what I've got in my head is not the right word. So, um, so we've been focused on, you know, basically fat tissue as an endocrine organ and that it gives off a lot of chemicals that cause a lot of downstream problems or, you know, so on and so forth. Um, but this paper took, you know, the view that you don't see presented very often as the skeletal muscle system as an endocrine organ, uh, which I thought was very interesting and very well done. And they brought up a lot of lot of interesting points and things that we can start to see now that research is focusing on how muscle tissue can influence the endocrine system and it you know when you when your skeletal muscle tissue is healthy um, and you're working out and there's hyper and you have ample amounts uh, muscle mass actually produces myokins which uh, again are chemicals produced by the muscle that have uh, systemic effects on the body. Uh, one of the ones that I thought was most interesting is by resistance training and increasing certain certain levels of specific myokins, you can it actually triggers brown adipose tissue to increase its metabolism and uh, produce more heat. So in other words, we have a direct link between the amount of muscle mass you have and increasing metabolism through wasteful mechanisms in brown adipose tissue, which is completely different from white adipose tissue. White adipose tissue is a storage mechanism. Uh, brown adipose tissue is actually our thermogenic regulation system. Uh, so, you know, just that right there, to me, you know, was a, a good, uh, basically stepping stone in the right direction of not just trying to focus on body fat, um, because then we get stuck in this scenario of you got to lose weight, you got to lose weight, you got to lose weight, do anything to get rid of your body fat. Whereas this gives the opposite signal. It's like, yes, you need to get rid of your body fat, but you also need to increase your muscle mass. These are very important compensatory goals. Um, and again, something that uh, would make me really even have a greater disdain for vegan lifestyles or vegetarian because you see a lot of muscle wasting. Uh, you can't find any vegan advocate out there who has any substantial muscle mass whatsoever. Um, the people who've been lifelong, when they go to these conferences, if you ever watch any of these speakers on YouTube, they're very emaciated, um, and they look they look anything but robust, let's say. They look very fragile. But would you like to comment on more of the focus on this paper? Because I know there's a lot of myostatin yeah. focus as well. Well, another thing, I mean, this is quite simple, but I mean, just simply insulin sensitivity, you know, massive implications for insulin sensitivity. And then also kind of a prelude to possibly our next podcast that we do on the research review, but you're increasing um, mitochondria content, um, which is massively important. Right. They, you know, one, um, what did you, what was your first point you mentioned that actually had insulin sensitivity? Yeah. So, you know, people don't think of, um, you know, people think of carbohydrates as a fuel for the muscle, which they can be. Um, but, you know, if you flip that around a little bit, you got to think muscle is the major disposal site for carbohydrates in the absence of, um, you know, your fat tissue. So if you don't want fat to increase, the more muscle mass you have, the greater glucose disposal you're going to have, which is incredibly important. That is going to prevent 
any byproducts that are necessary for the storage of body fat. Remember, body fat need you you need two things to store body fat. You need the fat molecule specifically, but you also need a glycerol backbone, which is most easily manufactured from glucose that you've ingested or carbohydrates. Uh, so if you take out the glycerol backbone, you slow down the capacity to store body fat and in some cases can limit it. So having more muscle mass means you have a larger disposal organism for glucose, and that's either going to be used for energy in the muscle or stored as glycogen. There's so many implications. And then they also talk about uh, myostatin regulation. When you resistance train, you get a downregulation of myostatin in the muscle tissue, which they went through in this review and showed that decreased levels of myostatin at the skeletal muscle level has systemic effects all over the body, including your body fat. Um, So decreasing myostatin levels by resistance training can also interfere with fat storage. So basically resistance training could have very positive effects on body fat storage over the long term. And my guess is why we've never seen this is because most studies are not – it would just be unrealistic yeah, it's to not feasible right, correlate these over the time span that might be necessary to see major effects here. Um, and they also brought up the interesting port point that this myostatin regulation by resistance training did not aid in decreasing body fat, but it made it very difficult to add body fat. That's a very, very important differentiation, uh, which is, again, one reason why we haven't seen this effect when they test resistance training to check against body fat loss, we don't see any. Uh, So that leads people to say, well, don't resistance train because you don't lose body fat. Um, That's not the case. You know, this, if you're, luckily, if you're already lean, uh, resistance training can make it resistant to body fat gain. Um, And then if you are overweight, by resistance training, you can then prevent greater accumulation of body fat. This is so fundamentally important. And you know, one reason why we should reassess what we're seeing in schools right now, and that's children having recess taken away, it might be just more beneficial to get them to spend 30 minutes twice a week doing some kind of resistance training, even if it's light resistance training. Um, that's a population that could benefit highly from this type of information. I mean, unfortunately, a lot of adults have already gone down the rabbit hole and they are obese and sick. Uh, so this is not a strategy to prevent that in that population. But if we get people young and keep them out of McDonald's, um, you know, there there might be some hope to start to see some change. Has recess really been taken away? Oh, yeah. Recess has been cut because <laughs> it's just it's not financially feasible in a lot of schools anymore. So <laughs> That was they, the one part of my day as a kid that I actually enjoyed. <laughs> oh, man, I hated recess. Like the gym teachers always made fun of me because I couldn't do push-ups. Or my favorite was when I had to climb on the rope. I was able to manage to get a D for that because I was able to jump high enough to get my foot up on the knot at the bottom of the rope. But I couldn't climb any higher than that. That was a D. If you couldn't get your feet up on that knot, it was an F. So I could never climb the rope no matter what. Yeah, now it's easy. I like a rope climb is kind of a joke. What what was really interesting to me too is the gym teachers at my gym could not have done any of the things that they asked us to do, but yet we were being. Was it the on proverbial it. fat coach? Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. Oh Female? my gosh. Well, no, it was a male. But what was even better was that uh, he used to. I won't name his name. 
but he he got uh, caught because he would he would drink apparently pretty heavily and then go and pass out in his office at the gym and then have student teachers go teach gym class. I couldn't figure out why we never saw the guy and it was because he had a bender the night before and was passed out in the office sleeping it off. Ah, perfect example. Isn't that awesome? I got all the inside scoop once I graduated because I became a substitute teacher after college for a little while. So man, the teachers would gossip about other teachers like crazy. It was insane. I learned about affairs. Um, yeah, all kinds of like, um, parenthood clinic visits. It was, it's amazing what goes on in the teacher population in high schools. It's, it's just like the high school kids. So, so back on track, it seems <laughs> <laughs> resistance training is good. Muscle mass is good. <laughs> yeah. You know, it just comes down to it. It's not just good. It could be fundamentally important to the future health of this nation. I mean, just end of story. Uh, think about, you know, everybody's worried about all oh, that, you know, all the minutia that, you know, dietary changes and things like that. Just think about the lifestyle pre-1900 to post-World War II. You know, so many conveniences came out. Uh, a lot of machinery made it onto the uh, the scene for farming and all these things. Whereas, you know, before 1900, there were a lot of labor-intensive jobs in the country. And those are, you know, there's not a lot of labor-intensive no, jobs they're, anymore. They're, they're phasing out. I mean, and think about the time investment we're talking about with actually working out a few times a week and what you're getting in return. It's amazing. I was just going to make that same yeah. point that, you know, in terms of the hours on the treadmill versus maybe a half an hour of lifting weights two or three times a week, uh, that would be, have a huge impact on people's lives. Yeah, instead of negative effects. And it can actually be enjoyable. Uh, yeah, you know, it depends. on Some people just, like, some people love to run. I hate to run. Uh, I like to lift weights, but some people hate to lift weights, so... Um, you know, that's, that's always one of those just there subjective might, things. There might be one of them in this room. What? People that hate to lift weights. Yeah, that's me right now. <laughs> I have to force myself to go into the gym because I just not, not enjoying it like I used to, unfortunately. My mouth dropped when I saw that email the other day when you said you were actually training Yeah, I'm regularly. back on schedule, yeah. I, I wondered if you had a fever or something. No, I've, I've been on schedule. I just decided, like, I, I know it's good for me and I know I got to do it. Um. And, you know, what's amazing is the quality of muscle mass I've been able to maintain for as little as I do train, which just shows, like, once you get to a certain point, I mean, it's a very minimum dosage you need to maintain quite a bit of mass. I wouldn't know. <laughs> I'm sitting here in a room of muscle heads, and I'm like the, the sarcopenic guy here in the office. <laughs> no, in the room. All right. Uh, so I guess we, got we can, that one in. yeah, after Rocky admitted to being the sarcopenically obese individual in the room, which isn't fully accurate. I Coop, no, I, th I think Cooper's doing better than you are now since I changed his diet. Thanks. <laughs> I'm on Cooper's diet, by the way. How does that work? Are you? You're eating Greek yogurt and dog food? Well, no, I'm eating, <laughs> sure. I'm eating, I'm eating, I'm carb night, right? So I'm eating the same type of stuff he is. I'm yeah, eating he, pepperoni and he cheese. He never gets the carb night though. He doesn't actually get the carbs. I, I'm not sure what that's going to do to a dog, so I haven't tried that yet. It'll probably dysregulate his thyroid. I, I just want to make mention. <laughs> I just want to make mention that he eats better cottage cheese than I do. So, yeah, he he gets the good stuff. Well, it's just because that's the one he likes. So, of course. You know, well, I try to force him to eat. Although I did switch to Greek yogurt recently, which he seems to enjoy. 
But maybe maybe we'll do an entire podcast on how to feed your pets so that they remain healthy. If anybody has any interest on that one, because it's really not that tough. Be helpful. Yeah. So your cat doesn't die of renal failure or lose all of its teeth or become diabetic. Yep. Yep. Pretty pretty common problems with. Yeah, cats. but we can give the cats uh, insulin. Right. Because that's so fun to do. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah, we'll just not start on that conversation. It's going to go totally off track. And uh, we've got Let's see, one ATP more. depletion and GLUT4 activation, which uh, could, ha- could have implications for carb backloading, carb night, uh, just training in general. Is it Rocky? Are you gonna finally take one? Take the lead on one? I'll try. I'll, I'll malign this, but I'll try. Okay. Um, so the article was attenuating the decline in ATP arrests the exercise training induced increases in muscle glute four protein and citrate synthase activity. So what they basically did was this is a rat study. Um, they had four groups. They had a control group, an exercise training group, an exercise training group with clenbuterol treatment. Um, and then uh, an exercise training group with clenbuterol treatment with beta guanadino propionic acid diet, which uh, uh, they abbreviated it as uh, beta GPA, which I will continue to repeat as we go forward here. So I just, uh, you might want to tell the audience what clenbuterol is or I can if you. Uh, clenbuterol is actually a beta agonist. So it's similar to like albuterol that you use with asthma and it helps with dilating airways, but it also can uh, decrease the uh, absorption of glucose in the muscle and can also decrease, it can actually uh, worsen insulin sensitivity as well. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so these are all uh, mimicking catecholamines essentially. Uh, or like ad- adrenaline. Like adrenaline, right, or epinephrine. So, so these rats were um, exercise trained um, about five days a week for eight weeks on a motor-driven treadmill. Uh, and then basically uh, their gastrocnemius muscle uh, was looked at for GLUT4 concentration and citrate synthase activity. Uh, and what they found was that these findings suggested that exercise training induced uh, increases in skeletal muscle GLUT4 protein concentration and citrate synthase activity um, and initiated in response to a reduction in the skeletal muscle ATP concentration. So uh, essentially, um, things like clenbuterol will actually um, decrease um, the ability for GLUT4 to translocate. And so the dependent aspect of this was the amount of ATP uh, that was available at baseline. So if there was not a lot of ATP available in the muscle, um, uh, exercise training actually... Um, altered that clenbuterol negative effect. So, um, so exercise is an important modulator of, of basically glucose uptake <laughs> is the takeaway here. Well, I missed part of that cause I had to go to the bathroom, but did you talk about like what could be the confounding factor with why the clenbuterol case, uh, did not show an in- increase in glute four? Well, I think we talked content. about, we talked about the amount of substrate for ATP that was available. Right. So the, so, like the glycogen access, or did you discuss any of that? I did not. So, uh, one thing that I thought was weak about this paper and kind of nullifies its results uh, is, you know, I've uh, there's a paper on uh, athlete.io that I wrote, or an article that talks about 
Uh, I think it's on there. I talk about ATP. Oh, it's in the creatine article. Uh, when I start talking about ATP creation and depletion and what we actually see go on, and no matter how hard you work out or what kind of training it is or the intensity, we almost never see ATP levels drop below 50% uh, within the cellular matrix in the muscle. Uh, so ATP depletion is, is kind of a little bit of a canard here, and I think that's because they look at ADP, uh, the ADP-ATP ratio, uh, which ADP can be can throw that ratio out of whack without necessarily showing a depletion of ATP. Uh, and one thing we might see here, and why it was important to mention that clenbuterol is uh, basically a catecholamine mimetic like adrenaline or whatever, is that, um, like Rocky pointed out, it can interfere with insulin action. So we don't see a big rise in GLUT4 activation uh, when there's a lot of adrenaline around. But what we do see is massive mobilization of intramuscular glycogen stores, which was not looked at whatsoever in this paper. And in the clenbuterol case, that might have been what we were seeing was just a massive mobilization of internal energy stores, which then made it unnecessary for GLUT4 translocation, which would have basically nullified the entire effects that they were looking for in that case. And before I read this paper, I had not heard of beta uh, GPA before, so I actually had to go yeah. look it up. And it sounds like that is a uh, chemical that can help um, improve the creatine cycle. Right. So, um, and I assume that would be the reason why when you added that to the training and clenbuterol arm, one of the reasons why it was able to overcome that um, mimetic effect. Right. Possibly, yeah. Uh, you know, greater efficiency could have... Um, well, I don't know. Actually, that's that's kind of an interesting one. I, I just found that interesting. I didn't know the yeah. actual mechanism, but you know, when they added that in, loop four translocated much much right. higher. So right. Um. Yeah, I, I wonder if it actually interferes with it. It could possibly interfere with clenbuterol's ability to then mobilize inter, intramuscular glycogen stores. So. So in other words, this, <laughs> I, I, here's, yeah. the, here's the thing I want to, you know, came to me was, uh -huh. um, you know, if we could bring it back to car backloading or, or even a shockwave is that, you know, we often will, we use caffeine prior to working out. Mm -hmm. So it would probably be important that if you're using caffeine, that you're probably using creatine as well in combination and not right. leaving one or the other out. Right. Right. I mean, yeah, that's the um, thing that made sense to me. Yeah. And I've been, I've been definitely backing off on caffeine recommendations lately anyway. So. For various reasons how about personal use <laughs> uh personal use varies from like almost nothing for weeks to like a I mean, gram a day like a red eye yeah hey <laughs> did you did you get one finally rocky i have not had the red eye yet there's if you find a place that has good drip coffee and good espresso a red eye is going to be one of the best coffee drinks you ever have which is just well obviously add some heavy cream to it and it'll be better but all it is is basically an Americano made with drip coffee instead of water. What was the other name for it? There was two names. Uh, you'll see Red Eye. You'll see Depth Charge. Uh, what's another? There's like three or four names. Red Eye seems to be the most common. Um, and that's, you know, I just love it. If, if nothing else, uh, it, it changes the flavor and consistency of the coffee. Makes it a little creamier. Uh, they're just, you know, it's become one of my favorite drinks lately. Is that what you had? Uh at Lola's, yeah, that's today. what I just <laughs> that's what I just had before the podcast because 
Uh, my allergies have been acting up, so I need a little pickup. But I know that's the thing that came to mind when I read this paper was the amount of use of any type of catecholamine or cholinergic mimetic and, and yeah. how you're using it and potentially maybe how you cycle it as well as opposed to being on it every single day. Right. And then the question would be the threshold of the amount and the dose. Right. Or you could just make it easy and try to avoid it. That's no fun. <laughs> <laughs> I think, you know, morning dosing with caffeine is pretty, pretty effective in general, uh, especially if you're either going to fast in the morning or if you're staying very, very low carbohydrate. I guess the question would be then, um, if you're training in the evening, then you probably want to probably have that morning caffeine and then be done for the rest of the day. Yeah, exactly. But even then, though, we know the um, alleged studies showing caffeine can be in the system for at least 10 or 12 hours, depending on the amount, too. So. Well, it's very highly dependent on the type. Um, that's the problem with a lot of those studies. So, for example, caffeine, which is found in coffee mostly, uh, is out of your system within about four hours. Uh, the, the type of caffeine, quote-unquote, or methylxanthine is the class of chemicals uh, that are in a lot of energy drinks, they might use theophylline or theobromine in combination. Uh, theophylline is out of the system in six to eight hours, and theobromine can be in the system up to 12 hours. So theophylline is the caffeine equivalent from tea, and um, theobromine is the caffeine equivalent in chocolate. What, what about just straight crystal caffeine, four hours? Yes. So straight crystal and caffeine is the caffeine that's in coffee. So I actually, I think that's it. We just nailed the hour mark pretty much. I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to this one. I mean, no, any, any comments, Alex, anything? So basically, you know, there's been a big shift in my attitude towards caffeine and how to use, utilize it appropriately. And it's a very big shift, and I'm not going to go into it on the podcast. And don't tweet at me what the new information is or Facebook. Hey, tell us about caffeine. It will be in the new car backloading too because it's, you know, it's not just a simple, oh, don't, don't have caffeine or, oh, have this. You know, it's, you know, there's a lot to consider when you're using caffeine for performance reasons and also things to take note of if your main focus is health and you're using caffeine. So, uh, again, don't. Don't blow up my Twitter account with questions about caffeine because you're not going to get a response. But I think that you're, um, as with everything, it depends because you have to ask the yes. question, what is the use of that substance, right? Exactly. Is it a cognitive issue? Is it a, trying to grow more muscle? Is it for alertness? Is it maybe because you don't want to take Adderall and it helps your ADHD? I mean, all those things have to be factored in. Right. Well, and plus what diet you're eating. You know, the, the context is always. So basically the entire thing is like, this is context. And I'm not, you know, I can't run through it. Well, I could run through it on maybe two or three podcasts, but I just don't want to. Basically what it comes down to. I'd rather just put it, have you read the book. And keep us all waiting. Yeah, well, it's not that complex. If you're worried about it, don't drink caffeine. (laughs) (laughs) Easy answer. Yeah, there you go. There's the solution. Don't drink caffeine anymore. But I will probably never be somebody who subscribes to that. Um but I do periodically take my caffeine levels very low. Um, but again, you know, I'll go through cycles where my caffeine levels are a gram to two grams a day, which is, most people would say somewhat excessive. That's it? Yeah, two grams. I think 10 grams is a lethal dose in a 24-hour period. Hmm. I think I'm probably at maybe, on a regular basis, probably three cups of coffee. 
I mean, that's kind of what I'm doing at this point. Oh, geez. In time. So you're not even at a gram. Yeah, not even. You're lightweight. But I'm, I, I might take a caffeine pill every once in a while, but that's only 200 grams. Right. Milligrams, I'm sorry. Right. I don't even think I've ever seen Alex drink coffee. One time you did. Did I? But it was decaf. Oh, okay. Well, that you still have the uh, cholinomimetics in there, so you got some stimulatory effect, <laughs> but, but no caffeine. You could always use tea for your vehicle for heavy cream, right? You, you could. That, that seems more like a British thing. I'm just saying, if you don't want the caffeine load, right? Well, I mean, well, but you still have a theophylline. I mean, you'd have to use some like crappy tea, and it's, you know that's not going to taste necessarily good with tea. Just heavy doesn't cream. taste good. Period. So, so yeah, I, I like Earl Grey. Like I like Earl Grey with cream. I mean, I think it tastes good. But then you got theophylline, and it's going to stay in your system even longer. So I just got to just just uh, down some heavy cream then. Yeah, that's it, huh? Oh yeah. All right, that's the way to go. Okay. Sweet, sweeten it with Splenda, even though it's artificial, and that's going to make everybody freak out. Uh, one Splenda or 20 Splendas? Well, I prefer in my coffee about 12 Splendas. I've seen this, but, by the way. So <laughs> Yeah, it's just, I, you know, I like, I like my coffee to have a sweet taste. So, And I'm not worried about uh, the extra carbs uh, because of the muscle mass I carry. And I'm not worried about the artificial sweetener because if you're going to sweeten something, like Splenda is probably your absolute best choice. Which we need to go over that Splenda paper, don't we? We never went over that. The one that was the oh, horrible, the, yeah, the oh, horrible yeah. done study that showed Splenda did all these things to mice. And it I was think like, we were we were waiting to get all our ammo ready for that. Yeah, one. that was such. We were gonna unload on it. A bad study. So we'll the next research review we will talk about that and uh, you know show that Splenda is a very safe alternative to sugar or other sweeteners in comparison. And also talk about why you should be careful with quote-unquote natural sweeteners because they have extreme biological effects like stevia, for example. Is that how, is that how you pronounce it? Stevia? I say stevia. I've heard stevia. stevia. Yeah. yeah, I think that's just because they don't know how to pronounce this it. This could be like quinoa, right? How many ways can you pronounce quinoa? Yeah. It's the stuff in the green packet. Yeah. It's, there you go. <laughs> what, Sweet Leaf? Is that one of them? Or I can't remember the brand. There's so many stevia brands now. It's the one that tastes bad. Truvia, uh, Truvia, Truvia is a yeah. big one now. Yeah, that I, I can't remember who. It's one of the other sweetener companies owns that brand. Doesn't Nestle own that? Or I might. Know. I don't know. Well, but, there's also monk fruit extract now too. Yeah, that one. I I'm curious of the biological effects of that. Besides just sweetening, I haven't seen. Any, I haven't looked that up yet. But I haven't, I haven't seen anything come across. Uh, you know, social media saying anything bad about it per se. Yeah. So. All right, I think that wraps it up for another episode of Body IO FM. Uh, this is your host, Kiefer, signing off, and we'll go down the line. Have a good one. See you next time. All right. Hope you tune in for the entire show, because if not, you're going to miss this very special ending, which is actually nothing. But, you know, you're going to miss those random comments like that. So I hope everybody listens all the way. been listening to Body IO FM with your hosts, Kiefer and Dr. Rocky. If you'd like to hear more, log on to body.io. We'll be back next time with more science from the pinnacle of human health and performance.